Welcome to Legacy Women's Podcast, where we seek to encourage women in their relationship with God and one another through monthly conversations with the women of Cornerstone Church of Knoxville. Thanks for listening to the podcast. And this month we're taking a break from interviews and releasing two teachings by Susan Hunt on the topic of biblical womanhood and Titus II ministry. Susan is the author of many books and the former director of women's ministries for the Presbyterian Church in America. She shared these at our church a year and a half ago, and I've talked to many who found them to be deeply biblical and full of practical wisdom. We hope that they freshly encourage you to live as a woman for God's glory. Enjoy. If I were to ask you, what are the biblical issues that are most under attack today? The issues that we as Christians are most likely to compromise. I wonder what would be on your short list. I asked my 20-year-old grandson this question, and without hesitation, he responded, sexuality. Kevin DeYoung responded to a similar question by saying that the issues today involved the uniqueness of Christ in a pluralistic world and the unchanging standards of biblical sexuality. We all know that there's not just indifference to gender distinctiveness, but there's fierce hostility to this topic today. A college woman asked me, how can I possibly think biblically about my womanhood when I'm constantly told that independence is power? to determine my own destiny, pursue my own happiness, and that gender distinctiveness is a fiction. My answer to her was to take her to Titus 2. It's printed on your handout. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then beginning in verse 3, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So what I encouraged her was to go to the women's ministry in her church and to ask godly older women to speak the truth of womanhood into her life as a counterpoint to what she was hearing from the world. But it was an unnerving moment for me as she walked away because I wondered, is her church encouraging and calling out women to have that kind of a ministry to her? A kind of a ministry where they can articulately proclaim to her what scripture says about womanhood. Biblical womanhood is not the only thing that we need to know, but not knowing leaves us and those behind us vulnerable to some of the most potent attacks on Christianity today. Someone is teaching the women and girls in your church what it means to be a woman. Is it the church or is it the culture? Now, my purpose today is not to stand up here and whine about culture. You know what's going on. But rather, what I hope to do is to hold before you the dazzling beauty of God's creation design of us as women and to challenge you to give that legacy to the next generation. So our focus in women's ministry is to equip women to think biblically and live covenantally. And I hope those will make more sense as we go on. Specifically, we're thinking today about thinking biblically about all of life, including our sexuality. 
to really understand Titus 2, you cannot begin with Titus 2. Titus 2 is part of the whole. I love this statement from the larger catechism. The scriptures manifest themselves to be the word of God by their majesty and purity, by the consent of all the parts and the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God. In other words, there is a scope of the whole. There is a meta-narrative of Scripture. You know this. And because of that, every part of Scripture agrees with every part of Scripture because it's all telling the same story. Well, that principle is also true for our lives. There's nothing random in our lives. Every part of our lives agrees with every part of our lives because there's a scope of the whole. There is a story that is being written. And the scope of the whole is that we're here to give glory to God. Another way to say this or to look at it is to use the, the outline of the pillars of theology, which are creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and consummation. And that's the order, the outline that we'll be following that's on your handout. To really understand womanhood, and because we want to understand the scope of the whole, we have to put it in the context of the larger story. And ours is a story, the gospel story, began before the beginning. Isn't that cool? I love that. I, I'm not going to read Ephesians 1 because of time, but I, I know you know that passage, and I encourage you to go and to read it later with this outline in mind. I have the outline on your handout. This is a doxology to the Trinity. It is a glimpse into what happened between the persons of the Godhead in eternity past as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made a covenant an agreement of redemption. And we read in that passage in verses 3 to 6, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who chose us in Christ when? Before the foundation of the world. Why? Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. And in the next verse of the doxology speaks of Christ. Christ redeemed us through his blood why? That we might be to the praise of his glory. You see this recurrence of this uh, phrase. And then verses 13 and 14, the Holy Spirit seals, applies, and guarantees our redemption to the praise of his glory. What I want us to see here, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are equal in power and in glory, but each has a different function in the accomplishment of our salvation, but those functions are equal. The Father did not have to die on the cross in order to be equal with the Son, or the Son did not have to choose us. You see, each had a different function, but all for the same purpose, to put God's glory on display. I love the quote from Michael Horton, God's very existence is covenantal. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit live in unceasing devotion to each other, reaching outward beyond the Godhead to create a community of creatures serving as a giant analogy of the Godhead's relationship. Created in the image of the triune God, we are by nature outgoing, interdependent relationship establishers, finding ourselves in the other and not just in ourselves. Now, this gives us the view that is known today as complementarianism, that men and women are equal in being, 
but assign different, equally valuable functions in God's kingdom, as opposed to egalitarianism, which says there is no legitimate difference of role and function between men and women in the home and church, at least not one that allows for male spiritual leadership. Complementarianism is grounded in the equality of being and diversity of function in the Trinity. So this view flows out of the Trinity. Then we come to Genesis 1, the beginning. And of course that chapter is loaded. And what I just want us to do for our purpose is, is to see four foundational principles that will help us to think biblically and to live covenantally. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Have you ever thought about the fact that light didn't say, wait a minute, I want to be water. Light did exactly what it was created to do. We see the principle here that God's word is the authority. Whether someone recognizes it or not is not the issue. It is. His word is the authority. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Man was created in the image of God, meaning that he was created to live in relationship with God, face-to-face with God, and thus to reflect some attributes of God's character, of his goodness. This is what it means to be created in the image of God. So he was created to reflect the glorious character of God. That's what it is to glorify God, to honor him, by living in relationship with him and reflecting, showing who he is, putting who he is on display. So the, um, the principle there is that God's glory is our purpose. And then God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Here we see that gender distinctiveness is God's plan. We're created equally in God's image, but with different functions, but the same authority and purpose. And then God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. This is known as the cultural mandate. And what we see here is that gender distinctiveness is needed to fulfill the cultural mandate. Now think ahead to the New Testament, and to the gospel mandate where we're to be fruitful and multiply spiritually by going into all the world and making disciples. And gender distinctiveness is still needed to fulfill that mandate. Thus, Titus 2, which says that older women are to disciple younger women. Not all discipleship is to be gender-specific, But there is to be some discipleship that is gender-specific because God created us male and female. Then we come to Genesis 2, and we get more detail into God's creation of the man and woman. First, we see uh, his creation of the man. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And the man became a living creature. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it, to provide and to protect. And if we were talking about biblical manhood, 
we would settle in on that and explore that a bit, but that's not our topic. But what I do want us to see here is that God created the man first, indicating headship. And then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may not eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. Here we have the covenant of works or the covenant of life. If the man obeyed, there would be life. If he disobeyed, there would be death. And man, this first man, Adam, was our representative. He was the representative for all who would follow in this covenant. So here we see headship of the man by virtue of his being created first and his being our representative in this covenant. But immediately after assigning man his high and noble calling, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. And the Lord God provides what is needed for the man to fulfill his calling. Now, notice that he does not say that the man is not good. He says that his aloneness is not good. Why? Because the man was created in the image of God who exists in Trinity in perfect relationship, perfect love, perfect unity in diversity. And so the man needed one who was equal but different so that as an analogy, men and women can uh, visualize what it means to have unity in diversity. So the Lord God said, it's not good for him to be alone. I will, showing his sovereign initiative, he will provide what is needed in order for the man not to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. This Hebrew word for helper is the word ezer. And of course, we cringe a bit and we're a little bit embarrassed to tell people we were created to be helpers until we're thinking biblically and understanding the word. It's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament too, but many times in the Old Testament, it re most of the times, it refers to God as our helper. So immediately we see it is not an inferior design. I've listed just a few of the verses there, and in italics, what God does to help us. He defends, he sees and cares for the suffering, he supports, protects, he is always there. He upholds. He delivers from distress. He rescues. He comforts. These are strong, relational, caring, nurturing words. And this is how God created us. It's very interesting to me that we are wired for this. I'm sure you've heard the study. Uh, first, one I ever, first time I ever read about this, it was a study that was done at UCLA that some researchers noticed that men and women in the lab uh, responded differently to stress. In their words, what happened was that when the women who worked in the lab were stressed, they came in, cleaned the lab, had coffee, and bonded. When the, <laughs> when the men were under stress, they holed up somewhere on their own. Isn't that typical? Now, what what these researchers said, well, why? And so they began researching, and what they found is that when women are under stress, we have a cascade of the hormone oxytocin that is released, and in their words, this is what happens. 
When this is released, it buffers the fight or flight response, which we normally think of, and encourages women to tend children and gather with other women instead. When a woman actually engages in this, and I love this phrase, tending or befriending, that's what our helper design calls us to do. You see, those are tending words. They're befriending words. They're relational words. But when a woman engages in tending or befriending, studies suggest that more oxytocin is released, which further counters stress and produces a calming effect. And this has many implications in a woman's health. So God has wired us with the hormones, but we've got a world out there telling us Independence is power. Don't tend and befriend, you see? And it's causing great damage. Now, when we think about the creation order, I do need to pause and just say a few words. The creation order of headship and submission does not mean that woman is inferior. When we talk about headship and submission, we're talking about the marriage, and the church. Headship and submission is a reflection of the Trinity. In 1 Corinthians 11, we read, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Christ is not inferior to the Father, but he submits his will to the plan of redemption that the Father instituted and he does that in order to accomplish their shared purpose of glorifying God. So when, men, when women submit in the proper arenas, we do so voluntarily in order to accomplish the greater shared purpose of putting God's glory on display. You remember Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. That young college woman was being told, you must be sure that your will is being done. Now, I, I need to give this clarification. A woman is not to submit to sin, and this pertains to the home and the church, a woman does not submit to every man. She is to submit to her husband and to the leaders of the church collectively. It doesn't mean that any elder could walk up and uh, speak into your life and necessarily you would submit to that unless he is speaking for the collective elders. There's safety in that, you see. God has built in the, the safety nets. But then we come to the cosmic scandal in Genesis 3. When the man and the woman sinned, and we read in verse 7 that the eyes of both were opened, they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Have you ever really looked at a fig leaf? Um, my mother had one in her yard, which is now my daughter's yard, a fig tree. And those leaves are huge, but they're scratchy, and they're flimsy. And so this scratchy covering was so ridiculous. And I suspect after a while they had a rash. It was painful. 
I felt the thing. But you see, this is what we do. We try to cover over our sin in just such ridiculous ways. But the story did not end. It should have ended. It would have ended. But God is a covenant keeper. He did not continue the story because, oh my, he needed to come up with another plan. But he continued the story because in eternity past, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had covenanted together to save and redeem a people. And God is a covenant keeper. So God comes to the garden. And in Genesis 3.15, we see that first proclamation of the gospel, which is a proclamation of the covenant of grace, the covenant of works man could not keep. But now we see the covenant of grace. I will. What glorious words. The man and woman stand there and they hear God say to the serpent, I will. God is on the march. What they did cannot determine what I do. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Freedom. You see, that's what they would have heard. God is going to release the captives. Us. And then it continues. And between your offspring and her offspring. Do you know what they would have heard at that point? They are expecting death. But God is speaking life. And that life will come from the woman, which means that Adam will be involved. They hear life. And then they hear that this life, this deliverer, this redeemer who will come will defeat Satan. So they hear victory. Here is the covenant of grace. Now this does not mean that the covenant of works is cast aside. It still must be fulfilled. But this means that one will come who will fulfill that covenant of works, who will obey perfectly, and who will give us life and give us life abundantly. What was Adam's response to the gospel? I, I love this. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. Now let's look at that. The man named his wife. He, fa he fell. He plunged us into sin. He lost the privileges of manhood, the privilege of naming. You remember he named the animals? But because of the gospel, manhood is restored. He is restored to that place of responsibility and privilege. But then he names her Eve, which is a celebration of her restoration, because the, the name Eve means life giver. And those helper words, those helper characteristics give life to relationships. She will give life to a child. And so he, he is celebrating her restoration, and he is affirming his belief in the promise of life. This is just, it is so wonderful when we think about it. So woman's creation design is helper, 
And our redemptive calling is life giver. Obviously, this has referenced our capacity to give birth biologically, but it's not limited to that. Or it would only pertain to women who do have children biologically. But what this is saying is that when the life of Christ is in us, when we have been redeemed, we have the capacity to live out our helper design. And when we do, that gives life into our relationships and into our situations. Think about that. We will explore it a bit later. Now, this, this transcends age and stage. It transcends our different roles. We are in different roles throughout life. But this transcends all of that. It is intrinsic to who we are as redeemed women. Now, we're left thinking. I mean, just imagine them standing there. How can this be? How can the one who became a life taker become a life giver? Now, God has spoken the gospel to them in verse 15. But now he tenderly shows them the gospel. Hit the pause. Girls, that's what Titus 2 calls us to do, is to show the gospel to one another, but also to speak the gospel to one another. We need show and tell. We need to hear it, but we need to see it lived out. Because this is not just an academic exercise. So now God shows it to them. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now again, put yourself in their skin just a minute. They had heard the word death, but they've never seen death at this point. But now they watch as God slays an innocent animal and the blood spills out. And then he takes those soft skins, he removes the scratchy, flimsy fig leaves, and he clothes them with the softness of the skin of the animal. Lean forward and behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and who covers us in his perfect righteousness so that we can stand before God. What a picture. Now, if you're like me, we're just gasping in wonder at the beauty and the grace of it. But I think Mother Eve would be saying to us, push on, girls, I've got more to teach you. Move on to chapter 4 because there's something I need to tell you. I want to spiritually mother you. I am your first mother, and I want you to know something else. So we come to Genesis 4. Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. Now, because the fall has happened, they have to go outside the garden. God has made a way for them to live in his presence, and the grand consummation will be when we return to the garden. But for now, we're exiles. We are redeemed people living in a fallen world. But as Peter says, we are elect exiles, and that makes a difference. So they're living out in the world now as elect exiles. You know, when you think about it, you would think that sanctification would be easy for Eve. 
And after all, she had walked with God. She had seen him. She had talked with him. She had heard the gospel proclaimed and demonstrated by him. But you see, sin is so pervasive. And our depravity is so total. Genesis 4, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Do you see anything wrong with that statement? What does she begin with? What word? I. Here already, she is suffering from a self-focused perspective. Exactly the message that the world was telling that young college woman to have. Now, what she's saying here is, I have gotten, yeah, God helped me, but I did it. I provided the deliverer. It sort of reminds me of a sign I saw outside of a church. Uh, shocking, and I wanted to weep. The sign said, do your best and trust God for the rest. And I wanted to scream, but I have no best. I have to trust him for it all. Now, if you look down on your handout to the four that's in parentheses, verse 25 of this chapter, we see a profound contrast where Eve says, after the birth of her son Seth, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel. You see the difference in our two statements? She has moved from an I-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective. And that is the movement from life taker to life giver. The movement from life taker to life giver is me decreasing and Jesus increasing. Now, what happened? Well, a lot happened because a lot of years had gone by between those two children. But we know of at least two things that impact this movement that took place. First of all, we see the effect of sin. We know the story of how her son, Cain, murdered his brother. So now Eve sees human death. She sees the results of sin. She sees one son murder another son. And so the very son that she thought she had provided to be the deliverer, the overcomer, is a murderer. So she fully realizes, I cannot do this. I have nothing to contribute to my salvation. And then the next thing that she learned is very clearly the two ways of life emerged and the characteristics of these two ways of life uh, emerged. In verse 9, and this is on your handout, the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? That is a statement of independence. The characteristic of the way of Cain is independence, whereas the characteristic of the way of Christ is an interdependence that reflects the interdependence of the Trinity. 
And then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The way of Cain is a way of self-rule. Going away from the presence of God means establishing our autonomy. The way of Christ is the way of God's rule. And then verse 17, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son. Building our own cities is living for self-glory. But yet, in the way of Christ, we live as he did for God's glory. So what we have here is an early whisper of the church, a picture of the church in exile. Here's the world, and if you look at that, independent, self-rule, self-glory, that is exactly the message that this young college woman said, how can I think biblically because this is what I'm hearing. And yet, in the way of Christ, this is a way where Christ redeemed come together as his adopted children, as his family, with the desire to live and act like a family in interdependence upon one another under the authority of God's word and for the purpose of glorifying him. When we live in the way of Cain, just as Cain murdered his brother, we will murder relationships. We will be life takers in those relationships and we will bring murder to those relationships. It is only when we're living in the way of Christ that we can be life givers. In Christ, we are declared to be life givers. We're declared righteous. But the process of becoming life givers in practice is just as it was for Eve. It is a process. It is a lifelong process. The chart that I have here for you gives the contrast between life giver and life taker. Checking my, my time. Um, and I think it's important for us to settle here just a minute and to to just put some flesh on those words. They're such descriptive words that there's a sense in which intuitively we know when we hear them what it means, and we know when we're doing which. And trust me, we are always one or the other. We're either being life takers or we're being life givers. So, so what does it look like? It looks like the wife who defends the reputation of her husband when her children begin complaining about some decision he made, rather than rolling her eyes and saying, you know your dad, I'll try to talk to him. There she's, you see, attacking him. Or it's like the, um, the woman who prays for eyes to see and to care for others. One of my spiritual daughters a woman in her early 50s works in an office with a lot of young women, mostly just out of college, who have bought the line that my young college friend asked me about. And they are, unfortunately, self-absorbed young women, uh, life takers, sucking the life out of her much of the time. But she began talking to me about it, and we began praying about it and praying. And she finally said one day, she said, what I want to pray is that even in that context, 
rather than becoming so annoyed with those girls and disengaging and pulling back and just not having any more to do with them than I have to, I'm praying for grace to show kindness. I just want to show kindness. And not long after that, she said, I, I've sort of found a, a little small way that in their break room, there was a place where they put their dirty dishes during the day in the sink, but the sign up there said, everyone, please wash your own dishes. But at the end of the day, those dishes were never washed. Now, if you've been out in the workplace, you can relate to something similar to this. And she said, the Lord just put it on her heart, wash those dishes. And so she began going in every afternoon at the end of the day and washing the dishes and putting them away and praying. And she said, I began to enjoy those moments of washing those dishes. So far, none of those young girls have even noticed. Is that not amazing? <laughs> that they wouldn't even notice that somebody had washed their dishes. But her heart is growing in kindness. And then she just the other day told me that one of those young women had come into her office and said she just sat down and began talking. And as she talked, I realized this is not just a self-centered young woman. This is a young woman with two small children whose husband travels a lot, and she's trying to juggle children, husband, work. And she said, she's an overwhelmed mama. I began seeing her with different eyes. And this young woman has five children, so she, I mean, my spiritual daughter has five children, and so she understands what it's like to be an overwhelmed mama. But when she said, I'm seeing her with different eyes, I thought, Lord, as much as I hate the situation she's in, I would not change it because I see rough edges being smoothed away in her. A kindness, a gentleness, eyes that see differently. And that's what our helper design does. That's what a life giver does. When I teach this to uh, teen girls, I'll often use the example of you're sitting in the lunchroom, new girl walks in, and she has her tray, and she looks around, and you look at her face and know there's a moment of panic. She does not know where to sit. And the other girls that you're sitting with begin whispering and snickering. It's your moment. Will you whisper and snicker? Or will you do nothing and be indifferent? You will be a life taker at that moment. Or will you get up and go say, hey, come sit with us. That's what it comes down to. And those girls get it in a minute. They know exactly what I'm talking about. It's the women's ministry leader who said to me, our women's ministry team has made the decision that we will not make a decision for our women's ministry without looking at it very seriously and asking the question, will this give life to our church? Not just the women's ministry, but will it give life to our church? Or will it suck life out of our church? The plan may be good, but it may be at this time it would suck life away from the church. One more example. When granddaughters... Um, Maggie and Kate were about six and eight, uh, six and six and four. 
One night, Maggie began crying. Her daddy travels a lot with his uh, work, and she began whining at first. And I miss my daddy. I miss my daddy. And then tears began rolling. Well, with that, pretty soon the four-year-old Kate was all, you know, when drama starts, the rest of us just hop all into it. And so the drama was just building. We miss our daddy. Why is he away so much? And the tears were just rolling. And we want to call our daddy. And so their mom sat them down. And she said, girls, your daddy has told you you can call him anytime you want to when he's away. But I'm not going to let you call him when you're this way. Because if you call him right now, you will make him feel guilty. You will make him feel sad. And until you can call him and be an encourager, be a life giver to him, I'm not going to let you call him. And they thought for a minute, and Maggie said, I will wait until tomorrow. (laughs) There's a lot of wisdom in that. Timing is everything, girls. Don't hit him when he walks in the door and you're in the midst of the drama. Wait until tomorrow. (laughs) Maggie and Kate are middle schoolers now. And they would be the girls in the lunchroom who would get up and go after the young girl. They have learned not to be weak, whining, self-absorbed women, but to be life givers. Now, how does such a thing happen? How can we be transformed from life takers to life givers? How does the gospel work itself out in that way? Jesus has made the provision. This is what Jesus prayed for for us. On your handout, John 17. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word that they may be one, just as you, Father, and me, and I in you, that they may also be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent us. The glory that you have given me, I've given to them. Why? So that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus' prayer is for us to be one, that interdependence that reflects the relationship among the persons of the Godhead. And he has provided his glory. He has put his glory in us so that it can be so. Now, this has reference, of course, to the Holy Spirit, whom he has put in us. But how does all of this work out? Jesus' glory is both Um, God's glory is external and internal. In the Old Testament, we see those beautiful external manifestations, the the fire on Mount Sinai, the glory cloud over the temple, etc. But the internal glory is the radiance that we see in Jesus when he dwelt here on the earth. The internal glory is the imprint of the very nature of God. It is the character of God. And I think this comes really into focus for us in uh, a story back in Exodus, Exodus 33 and 34. Moses had been on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. The Israelites were building the golden calf. So the Lord says to Moses, leave here, go to the promised land. This is what he said, go to a land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go among you lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff Necked people. 
So God is saying, you can have the real estate, but I'm not going with you. My presence I'm taking away. Now, Moses knew that they could not survive that way. If I had been in Moses' place, living and dealing with these stiff-necked people, more than likely I would have said, good idea, Lord, let's get rid of them and start over. <laughs> Let them go have the land. I'll stay here with you. But that's not what Moses did. Moses prayed as a life-giver should pray. First of all, he said, If I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. But he didn't just pray for himself. Consider that this nation is your people. He prayed for them on the basis, not of their performance, but on the basis of God's election. These are your chosen ones. And on that basis of your sovereign love, I pray for them. And God replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. But Moses didn't stop there because, you see, God was going with them. But Moses was still in the desert with stiff-necked people. So what does he do? He prays, please show me your glory. This is such a profound prayer. Um, I have it written you know how they do on the boards now with the calligraphy all of that I have it written it's in my kitchen and I've given it to all of our children grandchild who's married and I often give it his wedding present because here I think is the secret for us being life givers please show me your glory Moses didn't come to God with a plan of Okay, Lord, if you'll kill off these, and if you'll change this one's heart so they start doing this, and if you'll cause this to happen, then we'll be able to make it through the desert. He doesn't do that. He prays, show me your glory. Because you see, implied there is, so that I can show your glory to stiff-necked people. That's the need. Moses asked God to change him. That's what a life giver does. So what did God show him? God said, I will make my goodness pass before you and will, will, reclaim, will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And then it happened in Exodus 34, and this is on your handout. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord. Now that's the Hebrew name Yahweh, which means God is proclaiming to to them, to, to Moses, I am the God of covenant faithfulness who has promised I will be your God, you will be my people, I will live among you. I have bound myself to you in covenant faithfulness. That's what that name teaches us. And then God describes his goodness. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's what Jesus shows us as the radiance of his glory. This is what he showed us when he dwelt among us. It describes his character. All through the Old Testament, you see this description, different words of this, describing the character of God. And then we read that when Moses came down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he did not know that the face, that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. His face was shining. 
because he had been talking with God. Girls, this is the gospel glow. And when we've been talking with God, when we've been looking at the radiance of his glory and the face of Jesus in his word, gradually we will begin to have that gospel glow. But the interesting thing is, Moses did not even know it was happening. And neither will we, because the more aware we are of ourselves, the more full we are of ourselves. Second um, Corinthians 3 says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You see, we become what we behold. So the more we are beholding Jesus, the more we embark on this wild adventure when we see him transform the weak and the foolish, the sinful, the prideful, the selfish. And he does immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. We begin washing dishes of self-centered women, and we're delighted to do it. We look in our hearts and we're, we're shocked that we're not doing it with resentment. We begin protecting a husband rather than, he should be here doing this, he should be doing this. I've, that's not there. That's the immeasurably more that God does. Do we get out of the desert? Do the stiff-necked people change? They may or they may not. That's, that's not the point. But we change. We change. We become reflectors of his glory, even in the desert, even to stiff-necked people. And usually we don't even realize it until, as I said to my young friend, this is amazing that you are doing that and you're enjoying it. A life giver's prayer is, show me your glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I ask you to show us your glory and to then reflect the beauty of your graciousness, your goodness, your mercy, your loving kindness, your forgiveness through us. Oh, Lord, may we decrease and may Jesus increase. In the name of Jesus, amen.